As we transitioned into Matthew chapter 10, the end of chapter 9 provided us a little bit of context. Jesus makes this incredible declaration. Looking out at the masses, we're told he's moved with compassion. He sees people that are hurting, in need of, of, of ministry, an encounter with God. Jesus declares that the harvest is plentiful. But then he also observes that the laborers are few. Now Jesus has a big plan. He has a goal. He's going to change the whole way that religion functioned, the whole way that evangelism operated. In the Old Testament, it was a call to the nations to come to a physical location to encounter God. It wouldn't be so. God came in flesh. And then he would fill his followers with his spirit, sending them into the world. No longer would the world need to come to a place. Christ's representatives would go into the world, reflecting him and his compassion for the lost. Now, in a little bit of a kind of precursor of things to come, a bit of practice, so to speak, Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 10, calls out from amongst uh, a large group of disciples, he picks 12 men. We know them as the 12 apostles. We're given their list in the first few verses of chapter 10. He calls these men, he commissions these men, he gives these men power, authority, and then he sends them to the nation of Israel to go out and to engage in some practical ministry. He's preparing them for what would be the Great Commission. This is not the Great Commission. We noted that last Sunday. In a lot of ways, this is a very specific commission that Jesus gives to a specific group of men. Now, while specific to the apostles at this particular time and place, there are a lot of principles laid out in Jesus' instructions uh, that are applicable to us. Again, I think you can sometimes take what Jesus says here a little too far. Uh, this is, again, not the Great Commission. It's something very specific to these men this time. And yet there are truths buried in this lesson, the sermon that Jesus gives to them, that are applicable and necessary for us. In way of just getting a bit of a running head start, we're going to start back with verse 5, and then we'll begin our commentary where we left off starting with verse 16. We read verse 5 of Matthew 10 that these 12 Jesus sent out, but he commanded them. So here's his lesson. He tells them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. And right there you should note how different this is from the Great Commission where we're called to go into all of the world. Jesus says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach. And your message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In addition to preaching, Jesus says in verse 8 that they're to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. Freely you have received, Jesus tells them, so freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. Travel light. And whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there. Lodge with them till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable 
for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Behold, it's one of Matthew's favorite words. You find it frequently uh, in his gospel. The idea is take a moment and think about it. Behold, consider, I'm sending you out, but I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, if you're one of these 12 men, you've got to be sitting there thinking, well, that's not a very good dynamic. First, you're calling us sheep. And if, if you consider the animal kingdom, can you, can you really think of a, a more helpless animal than a sheep? You know, it's not as though Jesus is saying, I'm sending you as ninjas into a world full of wolves. You know, it's one thing to be sent into a world full of wolves. We get that. There's dangers. There's opposition. People standing in our way. People with ill intent. A wolf. But to be called a sheep in the midst of wolves, well, that's kind of a bit of a scary proposition. I'm a sheep in the midst of wolves, and it's in that light, in that context. Being a sheep, having a, a timidness, a meekness, non-threatening. He says you need to, therefore, as a result of this dynamic, you need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You need to be wise, but harmless. Again, worth noting, Jesus is giving a specific commission to these 12 apostles. And no doubt, in that particular culture, in that day and age, they would encounter wolves. They were called to be sheep. As a result, they were to be wise and harmless. There's a very specific application to their mission. And yet there is a principle here that's applicable to us all because we do live in, in a world full of wolves. We're sheep. We follow a shepherd. And as a result, as we navigate this world, it's important, prudent, necessary that we engage our culture, our time, the people around us with wisdom. That we're wise. To be wise as a serpent. We're not to be stupid sheep. Stupid Christians. We're not to bring about unnecessary attention. Or unnecessary opposition. You know, I've run into a lot of people just throughout ministry. Where, I mean, every, every turn they make, they get a measure of opposition. Like the world is constantly kicking back. And they're always crying out, persecution, persecution. I mean, persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, you're not. You're being persecuted because you're a moron. <laughs> like, there's a difference between getting the natural resistance from a, a world uh, that, that, that's filled with animosity towards, towards the things of the Lord and, and a world that just looks at you and like, you're dumb. Like, we're, we're called to be wise and smart and harmless. Again, I, I think, I think of, of opposition within our culture, and there is a segment within Christianity where we're, there's this sense of, of, of militant, that we're to be militant, we're to be organized, we're to be uh, on the attack. Now, it's true that we are instructed by Paul to don 
the armor of warfare. And it's also true that we're equipped with offensive weaponry. We are given the sword, the sword of the Spirit. We're given the Word of God. Jesus didn't send us into the world without armor, without the ability to protect ourselves, without the ability to go on the offensive. And yet there is this, this idea that we're supposed to be picking fights, sometimes unnecessarily. And, and Jesus is saying, be wise. Pick and choose your battles. Pick and choose your spot. I would say to those in the secular profession of education, I pray for you. <laughs> really. What a culture to be, to be in as an educator. And forget about this, this, this craziness with COVID. To mask or to not to mask. That is the question. But the idea of, of just this cultural wave of, of gender confusion and sexuality and as a Christian navigating a secular school, public school, the challenges in that, the, the battle between wh where do I stand, where do I draw the line, how do I navigate? I'm not called to be a jerk for Jesus, this, as if there's such a thing. But I am to engage my culture, I am to be a light, I'm to be salt, but how do I do all of that? Well, you need wisdom, you need to be wise. You have to pick and choose, and you're to be harmless. I'm sending you a sheep in the midst of wolves. And then Jesus says, beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Again, you know, <laughs> in the flow of the text, Jesus spends an entire night praying. He's got this group of disciples, whole group of people, that are following him. He spends the night in prayer. I'm going to pick from this group 12 men. They're going to be my inner circle. And you've got to imagine that there's this kind of moment of like pride and excitement, you know, for these men as Jesus is walking through the midst. I choose you, James, and your brother John. Yeah! I knew I was one of the 12 from the first day. I'm just glad you've now figured it out, Jesus. You know, and there's a bit of like, well, we've been selected. You got disciples, we the apostles. And then you're getting, you're giving this sermon, right? Well, you're sheep. Okay, thanks, Jesus. And you're, I'm sending you in the midst of wolves. Well, that's not nice. And you should beware of men. Okay. You have the job of being apostles. I'm sending you out. But guess what? You'll be delivered up to councils and you'll be scourged in the synagogues. Awesome. I'm glad I was picked for such a task. Beware of men. Beware of men. I don't know if you're aware, but we live in a fallen world. And you know, Jesus doesn't exactly qualify which men he's saying we should beware of. I think the implication being Beware of all of them, even the ones that stand behind pulpits. In fact, there's really only one man that you shouldn't beware of, and his name is Jesus, because he's the only one sinless and perfect. We're all capable of failure and disappointment and folly, and we should beware. Again, the wisdom, the harmlessness, but the caution, right? 
be cautious, beware, because there will be opposition. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But they will deliver you up. Do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Again, this is a great example of where this very specific command for these 12 men has provided Christians throughout the centuries an awesome measure of encouragement. Because yes, while these 12 men would experience opposition and persecution, Christians throughout the eons have experienced the same type of animosity, vitriol. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be opposed. Sometimes some of you will be arrested and brought before tribunals and kings, and you'll be presented as a testimony. You're persecuted for my sake, Jesus says. And in that moment, there will be a real fear of what do I say? How do I stand? What will I do? And Jesus tells these men, and again, it's a specific exhortation to them, but it does carry over an encouragement to us all who might face at some point a similar type of opposition in that moment, don't worry. That Jesus promises this special blessing from the indwelling of his spirit. In that moment, I'll give you what to say. You're being persecuted for my sake. You're representing me. So I'll give you the words as a testimony. You can study the martyrs of old, story after story of some of the most incredible things ever uttered in the face of tremendous opposition, in the midst of torture, martyrdom. Don't worry what you should, what you should speak. I'll provide that. I'll give it to you in the moment. And in a, and in a personal application, I would say for those of us that experience a bit of a different type of persecution, not necessarily the threat of arrest, but being opposed, in that moment, trust that the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. That He'll speak through you. That you can represent Him accordingly. Verse 21, brother, Jesus says, will deliver up brother to death. Again, <laughs> thanks Jesus. And father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all, for my name's sake. Such a, an encouraging message for a, a Sunday morning. Again, Jesus' words, not mine. Continuing, he adds, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I know there's a few things that we should unpack from these verses. <clears throat> First, again, being wise. Notice Jesus in verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. You know, there, there's some wisdom into this that sometimes runs a little contrary to the, the, the machismo followers of Jesus. 
where it's there's persecution and I'm going to stand here in the midst of it. No, no, no. You know it's okay to flee? That's what Jesus is saying. If you're facing an opposition in a city, they're persecuting you. Well, flee to another city. Like, you don't have to stand there and get slaughtered. Again, being wise, following Christ, it's okay to flee. I think that's interesting. There's nothing wrong with, with being smart about things. If the house is on fire, don't stand in the midst of a burning room saying, well, if it's the Lord's will, I survive. No. It's the Lord's will. You should leave the house. It's on fire. You know, again, just Jesus bringing about a heavy message. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be opposed. You're going to be brought before kings, for, before councils. You'll be scourged. But if you're persecuted in one city and there's a, a means of escape, escape. Go to another. I'm reminded of the story of the Apostle Paul. Again, very zealous for Jesus following his conversion. He goes to a particular town, and he's in that town, and, 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 and he's out there preaching. And there is a, there's a threat on his life. And Paul doesn't care. I mean, he's ready to go down with the ship. And yet the wisdom of, of more seasoned brothers come and like, no, 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 you got to go, man. And they lower him in a basket outside of the way. Flee. Again, the Lord... If the Lord wants you to die for him, you'll, you'll die for him. Fleeing. <laughs> but in the midst of the moment, you know, just kind of roll the dice. You know, it's like, well, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. I'll take the, the arrow in the back as I'm fleeing. You're in control. He says that you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. David Guzik, again, one of my favorite Bible commentators, he points out that this is probably the most complex, confusing, confounding, difficult verse in the entire Gospel of Matthew to fully understand. Um, I agree. Um, I think a measure of humility should be that I'm not exactly sure what Jesus is saying. Um, I plan to ask him one day, you can too. We'll do it together. M more than likely, this is somewhat of a prophetic statement um, with an application maybe towards the end times. There's a lot of different ways you can read it. Um, I don't think it really matters. Uh, for assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Could have a, a particular application in that day that Jesus was planning to get to town, to town, to town, sending them in, in advance, could have a more prophetic implication uh, for the final revelation of himself to the Jewish people uh, before the Battle of Armageddon. Again, you can, you can read into it however you will. Uh, I don't know, and I'm going to stick with that answer. Verse 24. If you know it all, you can start your own church. <laughs> have you, I, I'm going to get in trouble here have you, have you ever been in a Bible study where you know you're, you're, you're listening to it and, and you get to a, a verse like that and I mean the pastor just lays out with just really strong conviction exactly what it means and you're sitting there thinking I don't think you have any idea what you're talking about <laughs> maybe I'm the only one that's ever been in that Bible study before and here's just like 
I think of the, I think a pastor is a bit more trustworthy when he can say, I don't know. Do you know? No? Okay, let's move on. A disciple is not above his teacher. So Jesus is providing here kind of the reason, the explanation for the hatred, for the opposition, for the vitriol. A disciple is not above his teacher, a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. If you recall back in the previous chapter, in the midst of all of this incredible miracles, the supernatural Jesus was performing, amazing things, the Pharisees have to come up with some explanation. Now, the, the easiest one would have been like, it's the Christ, the Messiah, duh. But they're not going to go with that. So they're like, well, he's casting out demons under the authority of Satan, Beelzebub. And so Jesus here kind of tying a few ideas together, he's like, this is how they're reacting to me. And the disciple's not greater than his teacher. Like, you guys signed up for this. So if they're going to treat me in a certain way and accuse me of certain things, then you need to understand and accept the reality that you will be treated accordingly. Again, this is why we're to count the cost. Like, we, I hope you know you follow a Jesus who is rejected by the world and crucified to a tree. That's who you follow. That was the world's reaction to Jesus. And he was awesome. And you not so much. Like, if the most perfect example of Christ-likeness, Jesus, Christ, they killed. What do you think they'll do with, like, the poorer examples of Christ-likeness? You and I. It's like Jesus is, like, tempering the expectation. There's a cost to following me. The world's not going to like you. They're going to hate you, actually. And that's to be expected. That's to be understood. Embrace it. Don't take it too personally. The world's not our home. We're pilgrims traveling through. And as a result, don't fear. Don't fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. A another example of, of a specific application that carries with it a broader principle. In context of the religious leaders and their animosity towards Jesus and then how that carries over to the disciples of Jesus. In the context, Jesus is like, those men, they will say evil things about you. They will slander you. They will lie to you, a lie about you. But in the end, when it's all said and done, the truth will come out. The truth will be known. The truth of you, the truth of Christ, the truth about them, their evilness their wickedness, their ill intent, their false motivation. Again, specific context, broader application. The truth will always be known in the end. And we live in a culture that is really doing everything it can to blend the lines between what is truth and what is false. It's amazing, you know, we, we lived in a, in a time not too long ago where what was true for you was true for you as long as it didn't infringe on what was true for me. It was called relativism. 
Truth was a matter of one's perspective, not to be infringed upon another. You have a view of marriage, that's fine, that's cool. I have a view of marriage, that should be fine for me. I should have the same protections and rights. We no longer live in that, that environment anymore. It's not as though that you're free to have your own position. No, we live in, in a counterculture, a counterculture to Christ, a counterculture to the kingdom, that is trying to force a different type of truth onto you. It's not enough to say that what you believe is what you believe. No, they're saying what you believe is wrong. Isn't it amazing how much of the political discourse has been relegated recently into morality? Of things being right and wrong? Coming from the secular left. It, it, this most recent conversation that our society has been having over the topic, very controversial topic of abortion. It used to be like that you could have two different sides of, of the conversation and, and, and we could have two different camps and we just kind of stayed in those camps. You stay in your lane, we'll stay in our lane and let's just kind of like coexist. But that is not the culture we're in, is it? It used to be, oh, you, you believe in life. You celebrate life. Well, you can do, they're not wanting you to do that. We have senators out there not proclaiming choice but wanting pregnancy centers to be shut down actively. Well, what about choice? There isn't a choice. There's their dogma, their propaganda. We live in a culture where we're to stand with, for truth. And yet Jesus says, when it's all said and done, don't worry, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Yes, you'll be hated. Yes, you'll be persecuted. Yes, you'll be lied about, scorned, maybe even killed. But don't worry. And don't fear, because all will be revealed in the end. I'm still very much in control. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Again, in contrast to fear, Jesus is exhorting us to boldness, to stand for truth, to speak. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. First, I like that, the idea of the dark. Whatever I speak to you in the dark, it, it, it articulates kind of an intimacy, a personal oneness, the conversations of the dark. Some of my favorite conversations that I've had with my wife occur in the dark. When you're laying there in the peace of the evening, they're not her favorite conversations because she's wanting to go to sleep. But for whatever reason, I decide to get chatty. And yet in the dark, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Does Jesus speak to you in the dark? Do you have a time where you're just with Jesus? I'm not talking about prayer. And, and the conventional sense in the way that we perceive prayer. Prayer has a lot to do with you speaking to the Lord. And then we talk about the Lord speaking to us through His Word, and that's also true, which is why it's important you spend time in His Word so He can speak to you through His Word. And then it's important to spend time in prayer so that you can communicate back to the Lord your thoughts and your fears and, and your worries and what's going on. The Lord wants to hear from you. But do you ever take a time where you just shut up and listen? You know, I think one of the greatest 
um, strategies of the, the enemy, the most successful strategies of the enemy, knowing that the Lord loves to speak to his people, but that he often does so in what's called the still small voice, is to surround the people of God with noise. Think about your life, how much noise exists. Like, we live in a culture that's consumed with noise. Like, most people, they, they wake up, and they immediately turn on the TV, or they get in the shower, and they've got their rubber ducky radio, and they're listening to some tunes, and they get back, and they have a, their bowl of cereal, again, with the news, and they get in the car, and they turn the radio on, or they, they put on their earbuds and they go to work and they have headphones. Even when you work out, you're listening to something. Like, how much, think about it, how much of your life is there silence? Again, if God speaks in a still, small voice, how much of your life do you create a venue to listen? Free of noise. A lot of people don't like to do that because they get stuck with their own thoughts. What if I encourage you that it's maybe a time to hear from God? And that Satan, knowing that God wants to speak to his people and uses his still small voice, surrounds us with so much noise, sometimes we, God doesn't speak to me. <laughs> you know, maybe he's speaking a lot, you just don't listen. Or you haven't given yourself a platform to listen, an opportunity to listen. Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, in that quiet place, you turn around and then speak and declare. It often comes with a measure of weight when we begin a conversation. I've got to tell you what the Lord told me last night. Right? I mean, you heard from God? Yeah, I totally did. Last night, I, I, was, I was lying there in bed, and I was just thinking about the Lord, and I was just giving a time and an opportunity, or, or I was in the shower. Too much information. God speaks to me a lot on the toilet. You know, I noticed this, though. God speaks to me a lot when I'm on the toilet. It's a quiet place. It's true. You got a house full of kids. You can close the door. It's the one place you can close the door and, and isolate yourself from children. And no one's going to accuse you of, of running away from them. Sometimes when our house goes crazy, and they're like, where's mom? I know where mom is. Mom's in the quiet place. <laughs> Not doing anything but sitting. But you know, I, I found that I was spending too much time with my phone. Do you do that when you get onto the toilet? It's just you and your phone? Again, it's a quiet place. You're escaping, but it's you and this device. Older generations, it was the old newspaper. You had the pile of reading. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things that's been interesting about not being able to use my arms is that I can't take my phone certain places that I was used to taking my phone. The bathroom. And so I just sit there. For a while, when my wife had to help me, we had wonderful conversations. <laughs> now, though, that I have gained a measure of independence, which is nice, I'm there and I'm like, I'm bored. I got nothing to do. And so I'm spending time with Jesus. He's on his throne. I'm on my throne. We're having a great time. 
spending time with Jesus. You will never think about your bathroom experience <laughs> the same way. <laughs> this is what's dangerous about Zach Adams not having notes. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the rooftops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Again, such an uplifting sermon given by Jesus. A few thoughts. Why fear men when their power is very limited to the physical? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, he's honest, like, they can kill you. That's true. But they can't kill you. That's true. Like, don't fear those that have a limited power. They have no control over your life. But fear God, who does have control not over the physical, but also the spiritual. Now, there are some that try to take this particular verse and try to build the argument for annihilism. You know, that, that God can kill both <clears throat> the body and the soul. Notice that's not exactly what the text says. He says destroy. And that word destroy, again, you can get into the, the Greek language. You can research it a bit, on, a, a bit on your own. It's not a great translation. There's not a great translation into English. It's the idea of, a, of an eternal punishment. You can even go into the deep Greek scholars that are not even biblical that, that will validate the, the reality this has nothing to do with an annihilation. It's destroy, not in the total sense, but in a perpetual sense of, of destruction. And Jesus says in hell. Again, not a very popular topic uh, from today's pulpits. Jesus, however, spoke about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. Why? Because it's a real place that he doesn't want you to go to. So he's willing to articulate the truth. There is a hell. It's bad. You don't have to go there. You can choose life. He says, verse 29, And are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. Again, this is the context. Fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. God's in control. So in the context of opposition and persecution and a culture that will oppose us, don't fear. Trust God. Even in its worst case scenario, what can they really take from you? Nothing. And if they kill you, that's not them. It's me calling you home. I know about the sparrows. I tend to the sparrows. Not one falls without me knowing. I know the hairs of your head. I know you, and I love you, and I care for you. Don't worry. Don't fear. You know, I, I should say, What are two years of fear? Now, I'm not saying that there, there weren't real things to be afraid of with coronavirus and pandemics and lockdowns and this and that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have applied <coughs> a measure of wisdom and how we approached and navigated certain things, but fear. There's so many people that were afraid but why? Why be afraid? 
When God is in control, do you believe that he's in control? Now, that, that means you still should maybe stay home, or you should apply common sense measures, but, but fear? What is there to be afraid of when God is in control? Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, <coughs> I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, <coughs> him I also will deny before my Father who is in, he who is in heaven. Excuse me. <coughs> whoever confesses me before men. This idea of confession within its original spoke of oneness. It was whoever's one with me will be one with me. And whoever isn't one with me, this relationship, this identifying. Again, it, it would be easy to kind of twist this into some type of, of, of works-based exhortation. Again, placing the onus on you. If you're not willing to confess me before men, I'm not willing to confess you before my Father in heaven. As if Jesus' confession of us is somehow based on our confession of him. Again, the idea of confession muddies the water a bit. It speaks of relation, of oneness. Are you willing to be one with me here before men? Identify with me. Own me. And if so, I, we'll carry that over into eternity. And if you're not, that's fine. We'll carry that over into eternity, is what Jesus is saying. You know, people will often say that, like, how can an all-loving God send someone to hell for eternity? You hear that? T to me, I would, I would ask, <clears throat> how could an all-loving God force someone who wants nothing to do with him to spend eternity with him in heaven? Wouldn't that be hell? I mean, for the person that spends their entire life saying, I want nothing to do with you, Jesus. I want nothing to do with the cross. I want nothing to do with the life. You want, I, I'm my own God, my own man. I'm doing my own thing. And for you to then die and stand before Jesus, and he's like, I've really wanted to hang out with you, so you're stuck with me forever. How is that loving? <clears throat> God never sends someone to hell. <clears throat> he allows people to make a choice. Do they want to be one with him or separate from him? That's the question. There's no one that goes to hell that hasn't chosen to go to hell. C.S. Lewis actually writes an interesting short story called The Great Divorce. It's a hypothetical scenario where a group of people from hell get to take a bus ride to heaven. They get to heaven and they hate it. And they want to go back to hell. And the reason being is that for someone that has spent a whole life hating the things of God, well, in eternity, the things of God, they would hate. What would change? Interesting, interesting concept. Jesus says, therefore, whoever confesses me is one with me before men. I will be one with him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me, well, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> and he says, <coughs> do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. <laughs> we'll have to get to that next Sunday. 
So, Father, Lord, we thank you for what you said.